Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So today's episode is going to be kind of in the... If if you were if, if we were a news website, this would be the art the article with the title like seven uh, <laughs> you know crazy hacks that you won't believe, or more practically, this is the I've been thinking a lot about kind of weird weird or interesting workarounds or approaches I've been taking to work around either limitations in the platform or just things that I do um, on a regular basis to make my development process more efficient, more straightforward, um, and ultimately in a lot of ways just like more sane. Uh, that, that these are little, little things or tweaks or things that I've done that I've just found make my life a little bit easier. And I think that it's like whenever I find these things, I feel like they're useful and worthwhile sharing because maybe they can make, you know, maybe they'll, it's like they're very specific to my situation, but there's probably, you know, my situation is probably somewhat similar to at least some other developers out there. So it seems worth sharing. So the first one of these, and the kind of just to get the flavor of the kind of thing I'm talking about is, so developing for the Apple Watch is something that is, the actual like on-device testing and working with that is something that I find very cumbersome, um, is probably the, 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 the kind way to say that. that <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an understatement of the year right there. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is like actually getting your your you know your, your app to transfer over to the watch to have it launched to have it debug correctly and successfully all of those things um are just it's, it's just cumbersome and that's and that's just sort of in some ways inherent in it being a wireless debugging session and there's lots of complexity around that it's going via your phone and it gets getting better but it's still it's not great so but a lot of, you know i find that the nature of watch development requires a certain degree of like on device testing to really be checking and looking at things because it's such a small screen that if i spend too much time just in the you know in the simulator on my mac um, i don't get a great sense of how things would actually work in practice how big a button would be how you know how legible some text would be in practice Um, and this is sort of magnified by you know dealing with the fact that you have you know, even there's small and relatively large uh, Apple Watch screen sizes going from like the 44 millimeter series four and five to the 38 millimeter, say, series three. There's a pretty wide range in size there. And this was something that was causing me a lot of um, difficulty. And so I kind of cast around trying to come up with a reasonable solution. And what I ended up with was just something that I thought was kind of interesting so, is so the um, the screen resolution or the screen DPI um, um, pixel density of the Apple Watch is 326 DPI. Um, this is a, an OLED screen, and it's rendered at 2x, which turns out to be very similar to the iPhone 10R and 11, which are also 326 DPI, 2x, um, though they're LCD rather than OLED. So there's certainly a difference there, which has then led me to a place where I now, for a lot of my uh, visual development for Apple Watch, have built these kind of these weird... Um, like test harnesses where I take my UI as I expect to render it uh, for the Apple Watch and render it instead on a 10R that I have kicking around. And I can get a great sense of how things appear visually, how they work on different screen sizes, how uh, anything other than probably color, because color is going to be a bit tricky, the most different between those two technologies, but general like physical size and legibility are more similar. Um, and I found this to be a great tool for this. And I use a 10R rather than the older, there's several older iPhones that also had 326 DPI 2X screens. I think all of them from the think, iPhone 4 forward? 
probably. Um, but the great thing about the 10R is its screen is large enough that you can actually fit all four of the Apple Watch screen sizes on a 10R <laughs> screen. That's awesome. Currently. <laughs> so you um, have all the watch sizes on a phone with at the, at the exact right physical sizes so you can test like the interactivity and how whether stuff is too small and everything. Roughly, yeah. That, That's that is, awesome. <laughs> that is basically what you can do um, because the 10R screen is actually pretty big. Um, like, you know, it's, it's sort of in between the, the you know, the, the 11 and the max um, kind of size. And so it's pretty, it's a pretty big screen and you can fit them all in and you can do this great testing and it's just like, it's a little bit crazy and obviously it requires some nice clean separation of your um, your view hierarchy and your model and you have know, to be clever with it but um, and this is obviously you know this is something that you can that most of most use in kind of the devel- early development prototyping kind of phase where you're developing controls or visualizations or whatever those types of components that you're going to display um, ultimately to the user like this doesn't work great as like when you're in the final st- stages of testing like that gets a bit more tricky there i'd say but this is something that is a tool that i found that is useful and if you happen to have an iphone 10r kicking around or an iphone 11 kicking around like this is a, a great little tool for kind of speeding up that initial um sort of your iteration speed with initial uh, iphone development because the build and run cycle connecting to an iphone is something that is very reliable very very well tested and you know it's done over a cable which i think makes that process even even more straightforward so just a a a pro tip workaround if you find yourself frustrated with on-device testing for the apple watch that is awesome but i mean so like obviously you can't do watch kit stuff on there like what kind of views are you testing here just like custom rendered ones so i do a lot of my rent a lot of my rendering is custom rendering so there's many controls that i have or things that i'm rendering like like an example of this is uh complications for example like a lot of the complications that i do i've at this point i've essentially re-implemented um clock kit i have (laughs) have my own version of clock kit um that i i use for development which i also need for like on the iphone side of my apps where i'm doing um, like configuration where you say like, you know, oh, I wanted to use this font or this color or whatever. Like you, if I make configuration options available, I need a way of previewing that on the iPhone, which meant that I had to write a clock kit proxy that essentially simulates the rendering that you would see in clock kit on the device because I have to simulate that in the iPhone app anyway. I take so if I've taken a lot of that code and then just moved it over into ways that I can preview that, and you also get the advantage with that of things like I have a one of my complication testing systems where you know I have the complication setups for each of the different watch sizes, and then at the bottom I can have a slider that moves back and forth in time, for example. And so if I'm doing a complication that's supposed to change during the day, um, I can ask it to you know give me what the date what the complication should look like at you know at noon at 1 p.m at 2 p.m and i can just slide the slider back and forth and have it keep updating its rendering um dynamically through that and so that's a great way to kind of kind of quickly sanity check make sure it's working correctly dealing with you know are there weird edge cases or bugs that i need to deal with where you know if at it as you know some some of my complications um you know it's the involve shrinking things down to make it fit you know say, say like you have a weather complication then it displays the temperature like the t- if the temperature could be one digit it could you know it's like it's three degrees or it could be 125 degrees and obviously you know in 
given the size of uh, complication controls, like making sure that it works well between those two, it can sometimes be difficult. So having, you know, in, this, in the same way, I can have the iPhone app cycle through all the possible temperatures or all those types of things. And it's done in, on, on doing it on in a, in a sort of an iPhone test harness makes this process a lot more efficient for me. That's really interesting. I mean, and, and I think there's there's a lot of value in kind of like in test harnesses that take some kind of critical code out of the, you know, kind of lockdown or cumbersome environment it usually runs in, like whether it's, you know, iPhone or watch or whatever else, you know, like I think most people listening to the show are iOS developers, obviously. And, uh, but like it can really help to take things out and put them on the Mac, for instance. So like this is one area that I have been, I've been, that helped me a lot is whenever I'm developing a, a new audio thing for Overcast in recent years, I always make a command line version of it for the Mac that I can test, like as long as it doesn't use like iOS specific frameworks, which all my new stuff mostly doesn't. Um, and so like Voice Boost 2, I, I, again, I've been working on Voice Boost 2 for a long time, um, and it's basically audio processing algorithms. And they're all written in code that is available on the Mac as well. Like, you know, the only, they don't do almost anything with the audio APIs on Mac, uh, on the Apple platforms. They, they're really only doing uh, the accelerate functions, which are available on both. And so I have this whole voice boost test harness program. And as I'm developing it, I'm tweaking things and I'm able to, you know, not, not only does it help for, you know, the shortening the cycle, like the build and run cycle. Cause I mean, you know, you think it's good going from the watch to the uh, phone, try going directly to your Mac. <laughs> Sure. It's 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 like a, it's like another like you know order of magnitude better when it's just build and run and it makes a binary and you have a terminal window you can just run it right there and and run it on a whole bunch of files automatically so like like I, I have an, a different script that checks the Overcast database for like the the thousand most popular podcasts and just downloads their most recent episodes with their ID numbers and then I can I can then like have this great sample of very popular podcasts across a pretty wide range. And I can then run this on all of them to see, like, for instance, will this crash? Like, will will the algorithm have any crashes or memory problems if I it, like on any particular popular podcast? And I, it's good to know that. And and by by having this be a Mac command line thing, even though I'm probably never going to release the command line utility, it's mostly just a test harness for my iOS app. Uh, it still really helps to have that, just for both, you know, for for rapid development cycling. And then in, in also like, you know, in this context, I'm doing audio processing. It really helps to take the audio input, process it through Voice Boost 2, and then open up the output that Voice Boost 2 generated in an audio editor, like Adobe Audition, which is what I use for this. And then I can like analyze what it did to the waveforms and I can generate graphs and I can generate images and like stuff like that. And that's just way more that would be way too cumbersome to do in an iOS app, even in the simulator, like it's it's so much easier to have that just be like a Mac command line thing that I can run, and then I can run it on those thousand podcasts. And and every time I change something about how memory works, I can make sure I'm not generating a crash by doing like a huge parallel test run of all this stuff. I, I know this is getting a little bit close to test driven development. I'm sorry, but it's okay. <laughs> I, and I know I know I'm just kind of like approximating it poorly <laughs> instead of doing it right. <laughs> you're, you're doing a very imperative, practical version of test driven development that yeah. you just like it's like i'm just you're, you just run your code on lots and lots of things and see what happens i very strongly believe in that kind of like test harness philosophy it's just it's hard for a lot of things like if you are writing watch kit ui code for instance 
um, it's that's going to be pretty hard to take out of watchOS <laughs> you know, and, and to try to simulate elsewhere. I mean, knowing you, you probably could re-implement WatchKit. <laughs> sure. there's, only, there's, only like, there's only like 10 or 12 controls. How hard could it be? That's true. How hard could it be? It certainly seems like there aren't a lot of people working on it at Apple. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, so like it, obviously in certain, in certain contexts, it's harder than others. Um, but where possible, where you have something that's isolatable and that you can bring out into a test harness that makes your job easier, it's, that's a pretty solid thing to do. Yeah. And in this case, like find, finding, uh, uh, it's like finding sort of hardware that can simulate something that you're trying to do, which in your case, like a Mac can do this just fine. Or in my case, finding, finding an iPhone, the, the right iPhone um, to use for this is like a great place to sort of run your harnesses to get a good sense of things. Exactly. We are sponsored this week by Linode. With Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud. Actually, I could even run this. <laughs> oh, no, I can't do it on Linux, but I could. Uh, I wonder if anybody has, has the uh, accelerate function. Anyway, uh, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server with Linode in the Linode cloud. You can get a server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. I got a bunch of Linode servers, and I just love them. They're so good. It's so it's such a great host to be with. It's so easy. It's such a great value. I've been with them forever, since long before they were a sponsor, because they're just really good. And they have hundreds of thousands of other customers, so I know I'm not just crazy. All of us are looked after by their incredible 24-7 support team. If you ever have any problems, just email them or call them or chat over IRC in the Linode community if that's easier for you, whatever suits you best. They have also amazing guides and support documentation. So if you need to just quickly look something up or if you're new to a certain area of Linux system administration, their documentation is fantastic. You don't even have to be a customer to see it, but just it's just amazing working with Linode. They also now have a new management panel, uh, cloud.linode.com. It's a single-page app built using the cutting-edge React.js stack and is backed entirely by their public API, and it's open source, too. So you, anything you can do in the control panel, you can also do with their API if you want to script things or automate things. They also have two-factor authentication to keep you and all your data safe and secure. So check it out today. They have pricing options to suit everyone, starting at plans with just one gig of RAM for just $5 a month. You can do a lot with a one gig of RAM server and five Five bucks a month. I mean, that's that's basically nothing. And they also have, of course, all sorts of things above and beyond that for whatever you need. And I have been, again, I've been a customer for theirs for almost a decade. They're always the best value in the business. I've never found anybody that consistently beats them. And you can also get $20 towards any Linode plan by going to linode.com slash radar and using promo code radar2019. So 20 bucks, that could be four months on that one gig plan. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. So give them a try today, linode.com slash radar, promo code radar2019. Sign up there and make the most of that $20 credit. Our thanks to Linode for their support of this show and all of Relay. FM. So another kind of like fun workaround, I don't know, pack thing that I've, I've, I've used recently and I think it's a useful tool to keep in the back of your mind when you're especially prototyping, but even just for like actual production work as well, is just how far you can get with just basic UI views, doing basic UI view animation um, and some of the basic kind of like core graphics operations that you can do with UI views. Um, so for example, in the most recent version of Sleep++ and Sleep++4, I have a whole bunch of graphs and the really cool sort of data visualizations for how you've, uh, how you've been sleeping. Um, and I wanted to make these kind of fun and interactive. And one of them shows you your sort of typical bedtime and typical wake-up time um, for different days of the week. So you can say, you know, when do I typically go to bed on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, et cetera. And 
it's what I wanted was a kind of a nice, fluid, interesting way to transition between the different displays that I show there. And what I ended up doing is the graph is, you know, it's a series of bar graphs, basically, that, um, or I guess it's a histogram. I don't know. It's, it's a nice graph. Go look at it and go get to this plus. <laughs> it's a nice graph. All um, apologies but, to Dr. Drang. <laughs> yeah. But what it, to make it animate fluidly between them, I just I just make each of the bars a UI view inside of a parent UI view. And when you change the data, it just moves the bars from one, it's like from one graph, from one day to the other. Like it just, it just does the UI view basic animation and it's just changing the frame of each of the different bars and it just reuses them so that they animate fluidly between them. And you get this beautiful, really nice effect um, of like this nice, rich, smooth, super performant animation that under the hood is just some UI views with some color. And if I wanted to do this with like, you know, a lower level API using core graphics and using CA display links so that I could update my animation on a regular basis, like it would be a lot of pain and suffering. Um, turns out you can just, if you just use UI views for your, you know, for your um, graphical elements and then just do a, you know, UI view animate with duration, you know, 0.25, you get the great effect, super straightforward, and is really sort of easy to debug and take a look at because they're just UI views. They're not, you know, this, this, this sort of opaque representation, if I was rendering this into an image and then animating it that way, or using some kind of third-party graphing f- uh, framework or charting framework, um, you know, where I'm bringing in a, a dependency and something that does a lot more than I probably would want. Like this is the the entire graph and the, sort of the graphing system is a relatively simple, you know, cl- class, maybe a few hundred lines of code, very performant and straightforward. So like you can go a long way with UI view animation. And I think it's a great place to start anytime you wanted to do um, some kind of rich animation inside of your applications. Yeah, I, I would go even further with that and say like, you know, in general, like try things that you assume would be too slow try it first because you'd be surprised what modern hardware is capable of like again this is something i've I've run into constantly with voice boost 2 development is like i i kept thinking i I would make an assumption like oh there's a certain type of processing that that's pretty sophisticated that requires like something like you know a lot of math for every audio sample and you know you're playing 44,100 samples per second possibly in two channels so two sets of those and so like that's you have, that's a lot of math you know possibly having to do like significant operations on 88,200 samples per second total and trying to do that in a power envelope that is not going to kill people's battery lives or make their phones hot or get your app killed and ideally possibly in the future run on the Apple Watch as well and so i w- i would often assume well there's a certain kind of processing that i I'm not going to be able to do, uh, you know, me, like, and I, I, I would write it because I, I also use voice boost that the aforementioned command, command line utility. I also use it myself for pre-processing my podcast files just to save myself some time. And, uh, and that's why I might some, someday release it, but it's not on, not on my front of mind, honestly, <laughs> for sure. reasons we've talked about on the show before. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but you know, I'd, I'd have like, you know, the high quality, like mastering quality algorithm, and then I would write a low-quality one as well, figuring I'd run that on the phone. And then I'd run it on the phone, and I would find that the performance difference really was not very big, and that the mastering algorithm runs totally fine and would be like, you know, 0.2% of the CPU usage <laughs> during playback or something. It's like, modern hardware is way faster than you might assume it is. Way faster. And especially in an area like UI views, where that is something that, like, Apple puts a lot 
of resources, both software and hardware, into making sure that kind of stuff is extremely fast because everything uses it. And it matters a lot. Like every every app uses views and layers and compositing behind the scenes and everything. Like that's a pretty significant part of the OS and, and the frameworks. And the GPUs accelerate everything. Like it's a whole thing. And so you can just you can do so much with that that like you know you don't need to get into like manual image rendering or dropping down to the metal uh, APIs or anything like that for almost any reason. Like you can, you can make a game out of UI views. You could have. 100 UI views on the screen animating around, like bouncing around as sprites for a game. It isn't the most performant way to make a game, but you could do it. And if that's what you know and you're, and you're just trying to get something done quickly or you wouldn't make it otherwise, just do that. And it's probably fine. I think there's a lot of these things where like you can get, yeah, it's like you can get the proof of concept at least and probably even potentially better than that just using ui views and then like you know and just finding interesting ways or creative ways to use them like another example of if something that i found myself doing several times over my career is applying uh, ca rotation transforms to views so say for example you had you wanted to have a graph that scrolled horizontally say like pedometer plus plus where it has a bar graph for every day and it scrolls horizontally what about if you just take a ui table view and rotate it 90 degrees oh my god does that actually work it does <laughs> works fine i love that you've tried that <laughs> um and you just obviously you apply a rotation to the view and then you reply a rotation to the sub views um to make them so that they're like the right them way back over <laughs> oh my god um, but it totally works and you can do the same thing with a ui picker if you want a horizontal picker to be um picker rather than to be vertical to be horizontal you can use a ui picker to do that and make oh it um horizontal and like it's a little bit crazy and it's like i've also subsequently moved away from that in pedometer like i've you know sort of implemented my own kind of version based on ui scroll view but it's <laughs> but it's, it wasn't because the other version didn't work it was because i wanted to do more than ui table view could allow me to do um i just i hope that somewhere there's a ui kit engineer listening to this right now and either fist pumping because they put in the work to make that work or sure. crying <laughs> but, <laughs> that you're horribly abusing their api <laughs> Well, but the thing is, like, it is a great, it's like, those are the kinds of little tools that I'm, I guess I'm talking about. It's where it's like, there's UI, UI kit is such a rich and, like, well, like, sort of battle-tested, well, well-written well piece of software that, like, you can do weird stuff with it. And it'll probably work like you, exp- like you kind of would hope it would. Um, and you'll have some weird quirks to work around, maybe. But, like, you can do a lot with this kind of stuff and like many or many of these kind of things maybe like in this case the right answer is to use a ui collection view now um rather than a ui table view but like you can go a long way with just being thoughtful with like huh what if i apply a, a you know what if i applied you know a transform to a ui view or just you know an, an, like you're saying animate lots of different views or put views inside of views um and UI kit can handle most of this without a performance issue, without an, uh, a problem. And it's the best way that I've found to do that first draft of an app. And sometimes that first draft becomes the final draft. Um, but even if it doesn't, it's a really amazing, like the best prototyping tool I found and at this point is UI kit, like beyond doing some kind of like prototyping framework, like these things that you, you know, there's tools that you can do where you are like using some kind of other tool. It's like, no, just use UI views and it'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, like, I think a lot of a lot of this wisdom comes down to, like, don't assume something won't work unless you've actually tried it. Like, something that sounds like it shouldn't work, like rotating a table view 90 degrees with a transform to make a horizontal table view. 
<laughs> oh, it's so funny to me. But like, you know, it, just try it. Like, and I think most of us, myself included, wouldn't have thought to ever even try that. Sure. And that's why like, people like you who, who think outside the box, like that's kind of literally what that means. Like to just like, hey, this crazy hack might work. Let's see if it does work. Yeah. And, and, and like appreciate, I think, come to those types of situations with the humility to say, this is a hack and I need to keep that in mind and not just like, oh, it sort of works. Like, no, you need to test it. You need to be a bit more thorough with it. But like, try it. What's it going to hurt? And like, if, it, if you can end up with this really, you know, e- super easy way of doing this and it's doing all the caching and memory performance and all this, like, you have huge, all of these huge benefits that you might be able to get from using one of the pre-built controls just by tweaking it slightly or transforming it in some way. Um, like you can go a long way with that. That's amazing. The, the other kind of interesting uh, thing that I've been doing recently that I just kind of wanted to mention is the way that some kind of tools and things for localization um, of, of apps. Um, and so first, the one thing I wanted to point out, and this was something that I only recently um, discovered, is in iOS 13, we now have per app language settings as one of the options. Um, so if you go to the settings app, scroll down to an application, and it supports localization, you can override the system language for just that application, which huh. is a tremendous tool for development and debugging and testing because you can now very easily and in a very lightweight way change the language of just your application. So I can be like, what does my app look like in German? What does my app look like in French? What does my app look like in Spanish? Um, and I can make those changes very quickly and it doesn't change the whole system Whereas previously I would have the rather amusing situation where, especially in the non, um, n- non-Roman alphabet um, languages where I would change, you know, change the system language into Chinese simplified or Korean or Japanese, and then I have to remember the steps in the settings app that I need to use to go back to the changed language screen. <laughs> right. And change it back into English, but I have to do it just by memory of it's like it's the fourth item down, it's the then it's the second item down, and then I scroll to this like it. It's great to just be able to do it, keep the system language um, as English, and just change the language um, on a per app basis. So that is a great little tool, both for generating screenshots, for helping um, debug problems with customers, um, which is how, how this actually first came to my attention. Was it's like there were customers who had issues in a particular language or had a problem, and it's like I can easily, much more easily, get them a screenshot or understand what it is they're seeing by just changing it for the app. So, pro tip one and pro tip two is just something that I, it's some, it's like, it's one of those things where I'm not sure this is a recommendation so much as just a observation of something that I've done in the past. Um, so often when I'm doing localization, there will be like one line of text that needs to be updated for the purpose of a update. And it's only one line. And I don't really want to go through the fuss of doing the, like going through a localization, localization service and getting it translated and then incorporating it and hoping, hoping that the translator understood the nuance um, of what I meant in, you know, in this particular case. And so something that I've done many times, which I'm not sure is a recommendation, but it's certainly something to keep in mind Uh-oh. is I think of a string that iOS uses inside of its, its own, you know, its own apps. So the Apple's app, the, the ship, the apps that Apple ships or in iOS itself. And I will essentially just copy whatever it is that they used as their string, um, for, a particular localization. So as an example, when I was implementing the uh, system-wide dark mode in Pedometer++, one of the things that I needed was a string that basically said, do you want to use the um, the setting that you set as an override inside of Pedometer or should I just use the system, you know, should, should just mirror the system setting? 
was basically what I needed a, 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 a toggle switch to have. I think many of us have had this toggle switch implemented in the last few months. Sure. Um, but I remember that in the Watch Companion app, in the notification settings um, area, there is a, a one of the options is mirror my iPhone, which is uh. a... a um, a, an option that you can have, do you want the notification settings to mirror the iPhone settings or do you want custom settings? And so what I did is I just went through and collect, like changed my phone to be in German and French and Spanish and et cetera. And I just copied down what Apple had translated mirror my iPhone to into those different languages, which should capture the nuance of what it is I'm trying to do because it's the same concept. Like I'm not talking about mirror in terms of like the glass thing that you look at and it reflects back on you, which if you had, if I just used a localization service, like you could potentially imagine there's a nuance that is, that is lost there. I mean, this is a very hard thing to write copy for even in your own language. Yeah. And so I was like, I'll just, I'll just copy apples. And there's a few times that I like have to go to Google translate to like work out like i'll put in the english and then i'll translate into the language and try a few words if i you know sometimes it's hard to copy in the sense especially in like the um you know in, in a language that is that that is that doesn't use the roman roman alphabet but i was able to eventually just kind of like playing around with you know is it mirror is it copy is it um yeah whatever you get to try a bunch of different synonyms and you can eventually you get the get the character that matches the character you're looking for and that's what i used and like i said not necessarily wow. recommended not great in some ways because obviously i'm assuming that that meaning translates but so far it's worked no i'm gonna say that's great i'm gonna i'm gonna override you in that and say that is an awesome hack because that you know copywriting is something that apple does very well in the uis and it's it's one of the hardest things to do in an app especially if you're trying to outsource it to a language that you don't know so you kind of can't check so that's actually an awesome hack because whatever apple figured for their localizations is not only saving you time it's probably better than anything you would have gotten back yeah so anyway it's just a little fun little thing that if you, if you can think of a place or structuring your copy so that it matches apple's copy you can find you you can save yourself a lot of time and apparently uh, according to you it's even even better so I, i'll That's take that awesome. and uh, um, and recommend it now as a as a way to speed up your localization process especially for kind of simple things and i suppose you could also use it to validate externally produced uh, localizations you could take it that approach as well if you wanted to go that way but either way fun little trick that's awesome thanks for listening everybody and we'll talk to you in two weeks bye